You're listening to CSN International, your home for the latest praise and worship music and solid Bible teaching. In just a moment, we're going to join a study from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. But first, I'd like to invite you to come out and join us in person. We're located in Twin Falls, Idaho, and have our Sunday morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and Sunday and Wednesday evening services at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Visit theriverchristianfellowship.com and click on the map for directions or to schedule a visit. We're glad you're tuned in and hope you enjoy today's verse-by-verse study recorded live during one of our Wednesday or Sunday services. Now let's join the teaching already underway. Good evening, everyone. I'm going to start tonight with a story. I'm not sure if I should tell, but you know, that's right. It's not the worst thing I've ever done, so that's all right. I just don't want you to get uh, the wrong impression. Like my thoughts have changed on this. You know, God's done some work with me on this. But what what I was going to start with here is uh, kind of my involvement here at the church uh, to, to bring us up to speed on that. So I started going here about four and a half years ago, which is when I became a Christian about four and a half years ago, when God saved me. Uh, my wife Adrian and I, we were going to divorce because we are atheists and we thought we knew everything. And uh, that wasn't working all that well for us, even though for a while we thought it was. So we decided to work on things and, and not divorce. And we both kind of came to this realization at the same time that we don't know everything. Imagine that. And the way we were running our lives wasn't really working. So we thought, hey, let's try church because maybe if there is a God, he probably knows what he's doing. I don't think we were at that point, but we just decided to go to church. So I came here because I heard uh, Pastor Mike on to Every Man and Answer. I would listen to that and kind of laugh at it. And then I said we should come to this church because I knew about it at least. And so we've been going here since then. That's how we came here. And as things, you know, time went on here, uh, just... It was all gradual things, me getting involved here. The first thing was kind of like the worship team and getting involved with the worship team and getting plugged in that way. I don't even know if I could say I was really a Christian at that point. I just thought I could play bass better than the guy who was currently playing bass. Uh, he doesn't go here anymore, but that's, that's again, there, there's a lot worse things I've done, so I can, I can, I feel safe saying these things. Uh, but that was my motivator, so I offered to join, and so I did, and then eventually, that became, uh, they asked me to teach youth group because I'm a high school teacher. So I said, sure, I'll try that. And then they asked me to teach Sunday night service. I said, okay, I'll try that. And then uh, I started, there was like two summers ago, working here kind of full time during the summer because I'm a teacher. And at that point, uh, Pastor Mike had retired and then he was, he's coming back at the end of the summer. But during that summer, the previous pastor here, his time here was kind of over and no one really knew what was going to happen here and what direction we were going to go. So me being uh, the sinner that I am, the proud ego guy that I am, figured, hey, I'm going to be in charge of the church. I'm going to be the pastor now because I've been doing the teaching and I'm who's left here. I've been working here. I'm going to, that's going to be my job now. So I was getting really excited for that. I had all this whole plan, like here's my vision for the church. And I, I thought this was going to be sort of my thing. And I, it went from a thing that I just wanted at one point like, yeah, that'd be cool to be the main pastor guy, to be teaching Sunday morning. And then I really wanted it. So he started to covet that. And uh, then I didn't even just really want it. I thought I deserved it. See, and there's where things start getting even more dangerous. 
It, well, it starts with the wanting it, something I just wanted to have, which leads to thinking, I deserve this position. I've been here, uh, and you know, I've put in my time, I guess, I thought, and I deserve this. And then it was like a thing I needed. And then, well, when uh, Pastor Mike ends up coming back, which, again, this is where my thinking has changed. I've, I don't know where I'd be right now if he didn't, if, that, if I would have been in charge at that point. I have no idea what would happen with my life. So I'm very thankful he came back. But at the time, I was actually pretty angry about it because I felt like I deserved to be it. I, it was just, started as just a little thing I wanted till I thought I deserved it. And then it was a thing that I thought I needed. But then the problem was, well, if I need it, at least in my own sinful thinking, and God doesn't give it to me, well, then I'm very angry at God at that point. And that's, we struggled with that for a long, long time until God's, you know, been chipping away at that with me, you know, by his grace of not being so uh, stupid about it. You know, that's kind of how it went down. So we generally have that progression of things. We'll want something, and then it becomes a a thing we think we deserve, which then in turn becomes a thing we think we need, that we start with just this little want, and then it becomes a need, and then we get angry with God because we didn't get it. And it started as not a necessity, but in our sinful thinking, it becomes a necessity. And see, here's our problem, is this concept of deserving stuff. And we're going to look at this tonight in Job, this idea of what we think we deserve. And that doesn't usually end in a good place. I mean, maybe overall, but there's going to be some trials along the way when we start thinking we deserve certain things. Whether good things... I think I deserve something good from God because I've been doing the right things. Or whether it's bad things, I think, you know, something terrible happened in my life. I must deserve this. See, we don't get to make that call. But not only on us, on other people. See, then we start also saying other people deserve, when something bad happens to them, they deserve that. Yeah, I've seen what they've done. They deserved it. And when we get into this area, and we all do it, we all make this judgment that we think we know what people deserve, including ourselves. And that makes a lot of issues, a lot of problems. And there's sort of three things at play with that underlying that sinful desire. One thing is it puts us in God's spot. When we think we know what we deserve, what other people deserve, it puts us in the place of God. Secondly, it shows us that we have an incorrect understanding of our own sin. And then thirdly, it shows us that we're not entirely thankful for Jesus' death as payment for our sin. There's all these things underlying this, this idea of I deserve something, or they deserve that as a result of what they've done. That's what Job's friends are going to tell him tonight. We're studying in the book of Job, and we're at Job chapter 11. We'll do uh, 11, 12, 13, 14 tonight, because we've got to get that whole conversation in there. And if you don't know the backstory of Job... Uh, we'll have to recap that like every week, so sorry if you've been here and, and you've kind of got it memorized. But what happens with Job is he is a godly man. God himself calls him righteous and upright and blameless. So we got to know none of the stuff that happened to Job was he deserved it. right? That, that's what God said about him. Now it says in Job 1 that Satan checked in with God, which shows us that Satan is subservient to God. They're not like equal forces duking it out. Satan is subservient to God. He checks in with God and says, what have you been doing? Satan says, I've been going to and fro on the earth, you know, doing his thing. And God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there's nobody like him, that he's upright and he's blameless. 
And Satan points the finger at Job. He accuses, because that's what he does. And he tells God, the only reason why he's upright and blameless is because you've given him so much. It's said that Job was the greatest of the men of the East. He had possessions, he had kids, he had a household. And Satan says, the only reason why Job likes you, God, is you give him a lot of stuff. Take away his stuff and he'll curse you to your face. And God gives Satan permission to do that. Take away everything but spare his life. Or don't touch him. And so Satan does that. Job's kids die, his house is destroyed, and all of his possessions are gone. Yet what Job says is, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And he didn't curse God to his face like Satan said. So that's the first part. But he'd lost all that. Anything he'd accumulated in his life was gone. Possessions, house, and even his kids all died all at once. So then Satan checks back in with God. And God points that out to him. Hey, Job didn't do what you said he would do. He didn't curse me to my face. And Satan again points the finger at Job, accusing him, saying, well, yeah, you skin for skin. If you would hurt him, if you would take away his health, then he's going to curse you to your face. So God says, okay, Satan, take away his health. See what he does. So then he takes away his health. He's covered in boils, and he's a social outcast. No one wants to be around him because of his appearance. And even his wife says, just curse God and die. What's the point of continuing on? But still it says that Job didn't curse God with any wrongdoing in that. What Satan said Job would do, Job did not do. Now in, that's when his friends enter in. Job had three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they take turns trying to counsel him, okay, quote-unquote counsel. And they do a lot of this stuff that we do as sinners when we try to counsel people. And we've looked at a couple of the conversations already. There was Eliphaz who told Job basically, you reap what you sow. If bad things are happening to you, it's because you did something bad in the past and now you're paying for it. And Job says, no, that doesn't make sense. I haven't, like, I, I don't see that in my life. Then Bildad comes and says, we talked about this last week, well, Job, you are, you must be a bad person. Bad people get bad things that happen to them. Job says, no, that doesn't make any sense either. I haven't been a bad person. I see all sorts of bad people who are blessed, at least apparently. And so now comes in the third friend, Zophar. And what he tells Job, what we'll see tonight, pretty much, well, you deserve it. If God has killed your kids, taken away your health, destroyed everything you have, you must deserve it, Job. As a matter of fact, you deserve much worse from God. So this is where we get into this problem of what we think we deserve. And when we think we deserve something, it becomes a need, then we judge God. When we think other people deserve something, we put ourselves on the seat of judgment and make that evaluation of them. But then the question is, what do we deserve? And what is it that we deserve? And what we'll see tonight is that because only God knows what we deserve... We need to leave that decision up to Him. Only God knows what people deserve. Let's leave that decision up to Him about what people deserve, about what we deserve. And now, that being said, yes, God is a God of justice. Right? Everything, unless Jesus paid for it, you will pay for it. Yes. But what I'm saying is we need to be very careful then about saying what people deserve. That's in God's hands. So let's not do that. So let's go now. Job chapter 11. See what Zophar has to say about Job's suffering as he's trying to help him. Then Zophar the Namathite answered and said, Should not the multitude of words be answered? And should a man full of talk be vindicated? 
Should your empty talk make men hold their peace? And when you mock, should no one rebuke you? For you have said, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in your eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open His lips against you, that He would show you the secrets of wisdom, for they would double your prudence. Know therefore that God exacts from you less than your iniquity deserves. See, if we study the progression of his friends trying to help Job, they're, they're not even trying to help him at this point. I mean, it started when Eliphaz first talks, he says a couple nice things, and then he starts coming up with reasons why this would be happening to him, and basically pointing the finger at Job. Bildad kind of did that last section, but here, Zophar's opening statement to Job is like, stop arguing, Job. We're right about this. There is something wrong with you, which is why God is hurting you right now. And really, he says in verse 6, Know therefore that God exacts from you less than your iniquity deserves. See, that's the deserving part. Job, you actually deserve much, much worse than what you're getting. You deserve worse than your kids dying and your health being taken away. Because he says that Job thinks he's pure. My doctrine is pure and I'm clean in your eyes. And Job is making that defense. We'll get into that in a minute. But he's saying you're not. You deserve more than what God has given you. Now, like I said, we need to be very, very careful about making that judgment on people or on ourselves about what we deserve. Because what we're doing then, either we'll climb up on God's throne. We climb up on His seat of judgment and say, this is what people deserve. Hey, I see what's going on in your life. You deserve much worse. What we're doing is climbing on to God's throne. See, any time we make a judgment with consequences, that is what we're doing. So we're trying to like usurp God's authority and say, I can say definitively in your life, what's happening to you is because of something that you deserve. And we do this all the time. I do it all the time. The, these kinds of statements like, this person in ministry needs to step down because blah, blah, blah. So we're saying, we're making a judgment on what they've done and saying there should be a consequence for that. They deserve to not be a part of things anymore. When we say things like what God is doing with America right now, that's what we deserve. It may be so, but that's not our call to make. It's not our call to sit on God's throne and make that call and saying this is what people deserve. When we say those things or think those things, We're putting our limited perspective on a situation that requires omniscience. Nothing is so simple to say that's happening because they deserved it. Our perspective is so limited. And all these things, how they all work together, requires omniscience, which only God has. So we don't have the credentials to sit on that throne and say what somebody else deserves. See, the problem, Joe brings this up later. If we're saying things like that, this person deserved that. What we're saying underneath that, well, that's not happening to me. Therefore, I don't deserve that. I must be a pretty good person. You can only point the finger at someone and say they deserve that when you think you don't. That's what's hidden in there, and that's that judgment. That's what Zophar is saying. Job, you deserve worse. Well, has Zophar's kids died? Has Zophar's house been destroyed? No. So what he's saying is, I don't deserve worse, but you do, Job. Because that's not happening to me. And he thinks he can speak for God to say what he deserves. Don't you hate it when people put words in your mouth and say you said things that you never said? 
Saying someone deserves something because of what they've done, how many words is that putting into God's mouth? That's not God making the judgment. That's you making the judgment. And you're speaking on God's authority to say they deserve that. Leave that up to God. Again, I'm not saying that doesn't happen. What I'm saying is let's not be so quick to point fingers and say they deserve that. We don't get to make that call. So he starts by saying that. Hey, Job, you actually deserve worse. Your kids died. Everything is destroyed. You deserve worse. And then he goes on to, to now tell him this is the next step. This is what we do. You deserve worse, and you don't even understand God. So verse 7 through 12. Can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes by in prisons and gathers to judgment, then who can hinder him? For he knows deceitful men. He sees wickedness also. Will he not then consider it? For an empty head a man will be wise when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. See what Zophar just did. He became the, our sort of typical self-righteous religious person who we all can be. See, first he sits on God's judgment seat saying, Job, you deserve worse. And then he sits on his theological high horse and says, you know what, Job, you just don't understand God like I do. He says, can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? They're higher than heaven. What can you do? So you don't understand God like I do. Job, do you read your Bible enough? Do you understand God like I do? Because again, there's this underlying argument here by saying you don't understand God. Zophar is acting a lot like he understands God. See, he tells Job, you can't figure God out, which is true. He's, he is knowable. We can have a relationship with him, but we can't fully figure him out. His ways are not our ways. But when we say things like, they deserve it, we're saying we can understand God. You might not understand it, but I do. And then, continuing in verse 13, it's this progression. You deserved it. You don't understand God good enough. Now just repent and everything will be okay. If you would prepare your heart and stretch out your hands toward him, if iniquity were in your hand and you put it far away and would not let wickedness dwell in your tents, then surely you could lift up your face without spot. Yes, you could be steadfast and not fear because you would forget your misery. And remember it is waters that have passed away and your life would be brighter than noonday. Though you were dark, you would be like the morning and you would be secure because there is hope. Yes, you would dig around you and you would, and take rest in, your rest in safety. You would also lie down and no one would make you afraid. Yes, many would court your favor, but the eyes of the wicked will f- fail and they shall not escape and their hope, loss of life. See, Job, if you would just repent, figure out what's wrong with you, what you've done that caused you to deserve that, repent and everything will be okay. Yes, let's repent of our sin, but his, his little religious platitude here that we, we do this so often, this thought-ending cliche, everything will be okay. That's all you've got to do. I mean, he tells him, if you would do that, uh, then your life will be brighter than noonday. Though you were dark, you would be like morning. I mean, just saying, okay, I figured out what's wrong with me and I repent, that's not going to bring his kids back to life. That's not going to take away the heartache he's already gone through. But this is... Again, what we do in this type of situation is kind of hope the other person just accepts it. Yeah, you're right. I'll pray about it. Just pray for me. Now, the thing what Job does that annoys his friends, why they start arguing with him, is Job doesn't accept their little, 
like nonsense platitude and he questions them on it. Like, no, that's what we'll see in a minute. That doesn't make any sense. You can't just say repent and everything will be magically okay. It might not be. And that's the real danger in this pot of gold at the end of the rainbow Christian mentality that, you know, just keep working for that pot of gold. Everything will be better than it was. It might not. And what if it's not? Then, then where's your faith? That's not what the Bible teaches. It teaches that the tribulation itself is the blessing, not this pot at the end of the rainbow that everything's going to magically be okay at some point at the end. Yeah, in eternity it will. On this earth, maybe not. So here's Zophar. Okay, just to sum it up. You deserve worse, Job. You don't understand God. Repent and everything will be better than it used to be. Religious platitude. Just accept it, Job. Hey, you've done bad and now you're being punished. But... We know, in Job chapter 1, we know God's perspective on this. And this is what's so important. We know, if we know the beginning of the story, is God doing this to Job because he deserves it? No, it's really for the exact opposite reason. It was God who told the Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there's no one like him, that he's upright and blameless? So we know that it's not like some secret thing that God is punishing him for. We know that he's not saying, yeah, you know what? Job deserves to have his kid die. It's not about that. We'll get more of God's perspective at the end of the book. But what we already know at this point is that's not why God did this. So then we know, we can infer, that's not the way that God operates. We'll get to that back at the end. So the question before we move on here then, is have you been in Zophar's shoes? Yeah, we've probably been in Job's shoes where we feel like someone is judging us and saying you deserve that. But have you been in Zophar's shoes? Looking at people's lives, saying you deserve this to happen to you. You just don't get God good enough. If you repent, everything will be okay. Now I don't, and again, I'm not saying this is all the time. What I'm saying though is, why do we think we get to make that judgment? We have a limited perspective on situations that require omniscience. Let's just leave the deserving stuff up to God. He's the only one who knows. So Job has a rebuttal here, like he always does with these friends. That's why they get so frustrated with him. That's why they started being kind of nice to him, but now they're just pretty much yelling at Job. Because Job doesn't just accept their nonsense arguments that just try to make everything sound like it's okay. Job questions it. So he's going to say now in the next three chapters in his response... I don't deserve this. I don't deserve what I'm getting. Now, neither of them are exactly right. We'll get to that. But here's what Job has to say. Chapter 12. Then Job answered and said, No doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you. But I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Indeed, who does not know such things as these? I am one mocked by his friends who called on God and he answered him. The just and blameless who is ridiculed. A lamp is despised in the thought of one who is at ease. It is made ready for those whose feet slip. The tents of robbers prosper, and those who provoke God are secure in what God provides by His hand. So here's the the first part of his rebuttal to this. What you're saying doesn't make any sense. It might until we think it out logically in our day-to-day lives. Does this idea that because you deserve it, this has happened to you, does that make sense? No, that's what he's saying in verse 6. The tents of robbers prosper. Those who provoke God are secure. If God just gave people what they deserved, why would people who are 
Like godless and wicked be blessed according to our standards. This doesn't make sense. We can't be so simplistic as to say people just get what they deserve. He's also saying you're not as smart as you think you are. Like I kind of laughed at this in verse uh, 2 when he says wisdom will die with you. He's being sarcastic with him. Like, yeah, you know, when you die, all wisdom will be gone because you got to figure it out so far. Yeah, hooray, you figured out that God just gives people what they deserve. No, that doesn't make sense. Now when we look at people's lives. It's in verse 7. But now ask the beasts and they will teach you. And the birds of the air and they will tell you. Or speak to the earth and it will teach you. And to the fish of the sea will explain to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? And whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind? Does not the ear test words and the mouth taste its food? Wisdom is with aged men and with length of days understanding. Like even the animals know that God has done this. And that's, that's what he's saying. Right here, Job is in a, a pretty good position. I would say he, what he's saying is, I know God has done this. He's accepting that. Whatever has happened to him, God has done. And that's something we need to wrestle with. Anything that happens to, us, happens to us, God has either caused it to happen or allowed it to happen, which means he caused it in a sense. If we don't accept that fact, we can't accept the fact that God is omnipotent. And then why worship a God who's not all-powerful? Now, yeah, that takes some wrestling. We don't have time to wrestle with that tonight, but this is a, a pretty good place to be right now. I know God has done this. I don't think I deserve it, but I know God is behind this. It's not just some random thing that happened to me. He continues, though, not quite... Well, he's still in a pretty good place. Let's go on here. With him are wisdom and strength. He has counsel and understanding. If he breaks a thing down, it cannot be rebuilt. If he imprisons a man, there can be no release. If he, withhold, if he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the earth. With him are strength and providence. The deceived and the deceiver are his. He leads counselors away plundered and makes fools of the judges and loosens the bonds of kings and binds their waist with a belt. He leads princes away plundered and overthrows the mighty. He deprives the trusted ones of speech and takes away the discernment of the elders. He pours contempt on princes and disarms the mighty. He uncovers deep things out of darkness and brings the shadow of death to light. He makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and guides them. He takes away the understanding of the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them wander in a pathless wilderness. They grope in the dark without light and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. See, he said that I know God has done all this and he's also talking about the powerlessness we have against that. See, if, if God imprisons a man, there can be no release. If he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the earth. With him are strength and prudence. See, that God is omnipotent. Whatever happens, we have to accept, yeah, God has caused this. What He wills to happen, happens. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. And He's also sovereign. He answers to nobody. I don't think He's all that positive about it, which that's part of the wrestling part, that He, he has more of the perspective. We're powerless. Whatever God wants to happen is going to happen. But what He's getting at here, His argument is that God isn't limited to a predictable formula like Zophar thinks. That God's not limited to people deserve what they get. He's not that simple to understand. He's not that weak to understand that way. He's saying how powerful God is and He can do what He wants. That's one of our problems. When we climb up onto God's judgment seat and start talking about what people deserve, 
If God can do all these things, all these things that he just said here, which we as Christians believe that, that's part of being Christian. We believe that God is omnipotent. Then God isn't so simple that we can make judgments for him. See, that's the argument. Let's go into chapter 13. Behold, my eye has seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you, but I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to reason with God. But you, forgers of lies, you are all worthless physicians. Oh, that you would be silent, and it would be your wisdom. Now hear my reasoning, and heed the pleadings of my lips. Will you speak wickedly for God, and talk deceitfully for Him? Will you show partiality for Him? Will you contend for God? Will it be well when He searches you out? Or can you mock Him as one mocks a man? He will surely rebuke you if you secretly show partiality. Will not His excellence make you afraid and the dread of Him fall upon you? Your platitudes are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. See, now He's fighting back. He's arguing back against them. You guys, you don't really know as much as you think. You can't just tell me, my kids die because I deserve it. I mean, He calls them worthless physicians. You're not helping one bit. See, and that's when we're in that position of the friend that just says, you know what, you did. I don't think we'd be that mean, but we kind of hint that. This has happened because of something you did. That's a worthless physician. He says, well, you speak wickedly for God and talk deceitfully for Him. You don't know as much as you think. Can you put words in God's mouth to say, I deserve this? And he really puts in perspective when he says, in verse 10, Or in verse 9, will it be well when he searches you out? If you're going to point the finger at people and say they deserve something, what about what you deserve? Are you going to be so accepting of that? Yeah, I just deserve it for my kids to die. It's not so simple when it happens to us. Then he says your platitudes are proverbs of ashes. I mean, that's what I've been saying every week. These platitudes, thought-ending cliches. Let's just say them and hope the person accepts it so I don't really have to get involved. He's saying these things aren't working with me, friends. And your little sayings, your little trite expressions that we say, it's not really helping me. And he argues. So, I mean, we don't have to just take that from people. Yeah, I guess so. You know, just pray for me. It's not as simple as people can make it out to be because we're not God. So he wants to plead his case directly to God. His friends are helping. I can. I want to talk to God because he would be able to answer me. But this is where now he starts to transition into what I was talking about at the beginning. When we want something, then it becomes something we think we deserve, which leads towards hostility to God. That's where he starts going down in verse 13. Hold your peace with me and let me speak. Then let come on me what may. Why do I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hands? Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Even so, I will defend my own ways before him. He also shall be my salvation, for a hypocrite cannot come before him. Listen carefully to my speech and to my declaration with your ears. See, now I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be vindicated. Who is he who will contend with me? If now I hold my tongue, I perish. See, in essence, he's saying... I don't think I deserve this. I could talk right to God. I don't deserve this. I could plead my case before Him and He would find me innocent. 
A hypocrite can't come before him. See, here's Job's misunderstanding. Well, we can't be so simple to say someone deserves it, but we can't also be so simple to say that I don't. And he thinks if he pleads his case to God, he's going to be vindicated. God will prove that he didn't deserve anything bad to happen to him. But what he's saying is, I think I deserve better. And again, that's that dangerous place to be. When we think we deserve something, that only leads to being angry at God when we don't get it. Or when we do get it, maybe even worse, being proud. I did deserve that. I am a good you know, little Christian. I did deserve the thing that God gave me. Either way, that this deserving thing is very dangerous for us. So then he directs it directly to God. Only two things do not do to me. Then I will not hide myself from you. Withdraw your hand far from me, and let not the dread of you make me afraid. Then call, and I will answer. Or let me speak, then you respond to me. How many are my iniquities and sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face and regard me as your enemy? Will you frighten a leaf driven to and fro? And will you pursue dry stubble? For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. You put my feet in the stocks and watch closely all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet. Now he directs that right to God. God, I don't deserve this. Like, why do you keep hounding me out? That's a lot of what Job is saying. How many are my iniquities and sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Like, why do you keep coming after me? He, he compares himself... Will you frighten a leaf driven to and fro? If the leaf is already floating in the air, he's saying, God, are you going to chase that leaf down? It's already died. It's already been damaged. Are you going to chase it down? Are you going to pursue dry stubble? That's his anger towards God now. He's already been crushed. His kids have already died. His health has been taken. And he sees God as he just keeps going after him. He doesn't give him a break. He's saying, show me what I've done wrong. Why you keep pursuing me? Why you don't let up? This is our misunderstanding here. So one of the misunderstandings was it puts us in God's position. The other one is not understanding our own sin. So we've got to talk about this. If we're going to talk about things we deserve, we've got to look at sin. And we'll get this whole picture here in a minute. Now sin comes from the inside. It comes from inside of us. It's not what comes out of us. It's not what uh, is put into us that defiles us. It's what comes out. That's what Jesus says. So the, the sin is from inside of us. I mean, it's the simplistic example. When uh, our daughter Nora hits Johnny, why did you hit Johnny? He took my toy. Well, the, we tend to look outside of us as the reason why we do certain things. But sin comes from inside of us. And it reveals itself in our actions. See, we must have to think, if we're going to say, I deserve something good from God, like I was saying, like I say all the time, really, we must... We have to think we don't think that sin is all that bad. Even though theologically, I understand, yeah, we all deserve condemnation. We all deserve damnation. We all deserve eternal separation from God because of our sin. But if I'm going to go to God and say, you know, I deserved that. I deserved the blessing from you. We can't say we really understand the depth of our sin. Because then we would know we have no right to think we deserve so much. This leads to a bunch of other problems of being angry toward God and resentful toward Him. But what I think about, you know, when we are with Jesus in the new heaven and the new earth, and there's no sin left because He's dealt with all of it, and we see our sin for how terrible it is. And here's what that makes me think about is, well, why do I sin? It's because I like it. I mean, it's desirable to me. 
Even if I say I hate the consequences, I hate what happens, I only sin because I want to, because I like it. If I understood the depth of sin and the price that it took for Jesus to forgive me, I would never sin. And that's why when we see Him face to face, it's not going to be an issue anymore because we're going to understand how deep our sin is. So when we can say, I think I deserve this God, we're not understanding that. We're giving lip service to this idea of sin but saying it must not be all that bad. Let's go on. I'll go to chapter 14 real quick. Man decays like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. Man who is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. He comes forth like a flower and fades away. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me to judgment with yourself? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one. Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you. You have appointed his limits so that he cannot pass. Look away from him that he may rest, till like a hired man he finishes his day. For there is hope for a tree, if it is cut down that it will sprout again, and that its tender shoots will not cease. Though its root may grow old in the earth, and its stump may die in the ground, yet at the scent of water it will bud and bring forth branches like a plant. But man dies and is laid away. Indeed he breathes his last, and where is he? As water disappears from the sea and the river becomes parched and dries up, so man lies down and does not rise till the heavens are no more. They will not awake nor be roused from their sleep. And he's telling God, like, you've made people hopeless and helpless. If this is about what we deserve, we are hopeless and we are helpless. He's, he's saying we have such a short time here. And why does God, why do you open your eyes on people like us? Why do you bring me to judgment with you? Can a clean thing come out of an unclean thing? No. So why does God have such a problem with us? Why is he, as Job sees it, like continuing to hound me and hurt me and bring insult after insult? And that's, again, the deserving problem. And he goes on. Oh, that you would hide me in the grave that you would conceal me until your wrath is past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my hard service I will wait till my change comes. You shall call and I will answer you. You shall desire the work of your hands. For now you number my steps, but do not watch over my sin. My transgression is sealed up in a bag and you cover my iniquity. But as a mountain falls and crumbles away, and as a rock is moved from its place... As water wears away stones and as torrents wash away the soil of the earth, so you destroy the hope of man. You prevail forever against him and he passes on. You change his countenance and send him away. His sons come to honor and he does not know it. They are brought low and he does not perceive it. But his flesh will be in pain over it and his soul will mourn over it. People don't deserve what you do to them, God. He compares God to like an erosion, that you just wear people down. They're like mountains and you wear them down because you you just keep going after people. You don't give us a break and then we just die and it's over. See, that's where Job is. We can't fault Job for being where he is, considering his situation. But this again shows us our problem. This is what it leads to when we think we deserve something and then we don't get it. Now we need to answer this question. We'll end with this is what do we then deserve? Let's have a real understanding of that so that we can leave that in the hands of God. 
We'll look in Romans. If you'll turn to the book of Romans chapter 3. Let me read Romans 3, 10 through 18. So we can understand what we deserve. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and that all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So if we're going to try to understand what we deserve, we need to start here with our sin, as we've talked about, that we're sinners in thought, word, and deed. There's none righteous, no, not one. We're all unprofitable. There's none who understands. There's no one who's righteous. Now, if we go back, we're not going to have time to go back and read it, but in Romans it also says that it's the love of God that leads us to repentance. See, I don't think anyone recognizes Jesus as Lord and Savior because we're scared of going to hell. I don't think it ever works that way. It's the love of God that leads us to repentance. How can we love God when we de-emphasize or devalue our own sin? We can't really love God if we don't see our sin, at least attempt to see it for what it is. And then we won't repent if we don't think that we're sinful. So, I mean, do I really deserve to be standing up here right now reading God's Word? No, I don't. Do you deserve to be sitting here right now listening to God's Word, singing praises to Him, praying to Him? No, you don't. So we have to accept that fact. And we're all sinners. And that results in condemnation. And because of that, it says earlier in Romans that we're storing up wrath for the day of wrath. Now that being said, God is not interested in giving us what we deserve. And if God is not interested in giving us what we deserve, neither should we be. So what I mean is the cross. Jesus' crucifixion. What that proves is God is not interested in that. God is not interested in you getting what you deserve. Because if He was, Jesus would not have come to the earth. God would not have entered into His own creation. He would not have lived a perfect life for you. And He definitely would not have died so you could be forgiven. That tells us that God is not interested in giving people what they deserve. At least not at this point. It says that God is not willing that any should perish. He wants everyone to receive eternal life. That is why He died on our behalf. So we wouldn't have to get what we deserve. So if God's not interested in that, why are we so interested in telling people what they deserve? Why are we so interested in telling God what I deserve? He's not into that. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Yes, there will come a day when if Jesus didn't take what you deserve, you will pay for it. Yeah, that will happen. Right now, and this is the era of grace, God wants to give grace through His Son, Jesus, that we'd accept that payment and not get what we deserve. So the bottom line here, yeah, we deserve much worse than we get. But God is not interested in giving you that. He's interested in giving you grace in life. And if we continue in Romans 3, 
But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's what Jesus' crucifixion says. God's not interested in giving you what you deserve. He's interested in giving you grace. And when I got angry with God, or when I get angry with Him, and this happens continually, I just picked one example at the beginning, because He didn't give me what I thought I deserved, I showed there a functional misunderstanding of my place in the universe, which is not on God's throne. I don't get to tell God what I think I deserve. When I get angry with God because I don't get what I think I deserve, I'm showing I have a functional misunderstanding of my own sin. That I'm not really that bad that God owes me something because I deserve it. See, when I get angry at God because of what I deserve, I'm showing I have a functional misunderstanding of what Jesus has done for me. Yeah, Jesus, you know, it's really nice of you that you died for me, but I actually deserve something else too. See, that this deserving thing is so... Tricky and dangerous, yet pervasive. We just don't get to make that decision. It, maybe God gives people what, he deserve, what they deserve. That's His choice, though. That's his. We don't get to tell people they deserve it. We don't get to tell ourselves we deserve it, whether good or bad. It works both ways. Yeah, I went through this hard time because I deserved it. We don't get to make that choice or that decision or that judgment. Who are we to say what we deserve? Let's be thankful that we worship a God who not only isn't interested in giving us what we deserve, but who gives us far more than what we deserve. Eternal life through faith in His Son, Jesus. Let's pray. Well, Father, uh, first, we come to You to just ask forgiveness. Because we know, I mean, all of us, have made that judgment, putting words in your mouth, saying what people deserve, whether it's us or whether it's other people, whether it's good things or bad things. God, we don't have any right to make that judgment. Help us to leave that in your hands, God. Help us to remember that how merciful you are, that you're not about giving people what they deserve. What you're about is giving us grace. Help those, Lord, who are suffering and maybe who are questioning this. What have I done to deserve this? God, help us to know that, that that's not our place to decide. And if there's anyone who's listening, God, who, who doesn't know you, has not accepted that grace from you, I pray that you would turn their heart toward you right now, that you'd help them to see that one day they will get what they deserve if they don't give that to Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your patience with us and your love and your grace and understanding. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You've been listening to a live teaching from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. If you'd like to hear today's teaching again, you can catch the free podcast by searching the iTunes store for the River Christian Fellowship. 
or call us at 800-357-4226. Don't forget to catch next week's morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and tune in next week for more from the River Christian Fellowship.